And the last messages I traded with Jana were, I love you, and then I turned the phone off. I did not want any more communication. And I really didn't know what I was doing other than I was fleeing from things. I could not bear anymore. And I kept driving south, stopping in places I might have been curious, but really having no idea other than I just was getting away from the conflict. I couldn't stand being And I got to a point as it was getting dark where I came to a Native American reservation. And I didn't know where I could find gas. And I wasn't sure I wanted to go home, but I didn't know where I could find a place to sleep. And I drove into this Native American reservation and I started noticing the poverty that I hadn't seen in 40 years. That grew up in Minnesota up close to Native American reservations, went to school with Native American kids, and there was a poverty that existed 40 years ago that doesn't exist anymore in Minnesota, but it exists in North Dakota. And I found myself wrestling with what do I do, and there was a, the easy part of my personality said, just keep driving south, just flee. And I thought a little bit, and I remembered my marriage vows, Sickness and hell, death do us part. And I looked at what I saw of the conflict in Minnesota had spilled a new history into North Dakota, and here it was, and it was generations of problems that should have been solved but weren't. And I turned around and started driving home, started going to live again. went home not because I wanted to, but because I felt a sense of duty to go home. And uh, Jan and I uh, stayed up till midnight, which is, you know, about three hours past my bedtime. And uh, Thursday, Friday, Saturday have been really good days in our home. But saying all of this, I have a pretty strong suspicion that almost all of us, if we're being honest of what has happened to us in the last few weeks, we're all bumping up against all of the things that are both the best and worst in us. We're struggling with all of the things that we might keep a bit hidden. And we're going through a season where God's disciplining us. I think he's going to make us into better people. And as this is happening, we're studying and revive. We're going through the book of James. And if you were joining us a few months ago, we were in Galatians where Paul was talking about freedom in Christ and he was specifically addressing what do we do as God's people who have a Jewish background who have now incorporated into the church all of these Gentiles who have a very different understanding. And there was about a 20 to 30 year period of time in which God's people are wrestling with this. And I think Galatians and James in some ways are like two sides of the same coin. And uh, Galatians is dealing a little bit more culturally Gentiles, James is clearly more Jewish. Galatians, over half the text, is dealing with here's the theology, here's the things we believe. James is dealing with how do we live? Yesterday or yesterday, last week we talked about who is James, the author. He's most likely the brother of Jesus. He was not a follower of Jesus until after the resurrection, and after the resurrection, everything changes. He becomes an early leader of the church. And generally, if you look at his writing, if we want to use terms that make sense to us, we'd say James was more conservative than Paul. 
He stays in Jerusalem and provides stability. And when things are really getting tough about how do we deal with all of these complex cultural issues that our faith intersects with, James is the one who starts to speak with the authority that has this deep moral authority from a more conservative standpoint, and he's the game changer. He changes things. The church can find a way to move forward balancing out these complexities. James' book is written to the 12 tribes dispersed throughout the world. And I'm going to just give you a couple quick summaries. The Israelite people in 722 went into Syrian captivity. And then the Jewish people, the southern cousin tribe in 587, went into Babylonian captivity. And you have a several hundred years period of time where people are scattered abroad and they're intermarrying and they're becoming something new culturally. And when James is writing, he's writing to a people that are scattered and dispersed, who are dealing with great complexity. And I think it's particularly relevant today if we are feeling scattered, if we are diverse, and particularly if you are a Christ follower in post-Christian Western Europe or North America, you really are living in exile. You don't fit here anymore. And we can pray and hope that God is going to take what we're going through with this pandemic and change us into new people. In fact, I think he will. But we're going to be out of place for some time. We're not going to feel like we fit. Last week we were in James chapter 1. We looked, in fact, we're going to be there this week, but we looked through the first 2 to 12 verses, which we're dealing with how you live. And I want to make four simple summaries. One, we should face our trials with joy. And I used an illustration that, again, was very personal. My son, Timothy, does something that I don't fully understand. But when my son, Timothy, faces something that's physically hard, it brings him joy. And once when he was a very little boy, he had slightly misbehaved, and when his older brothers would do that, I had a habit of just giving them hard work and letting them work off their frustration, and they tend to tone it down, and they'd be more cooperative. I tried to do that with Timothy about 12 years ago, and what Timothy did, I put a backpack on his back, I filled it up with books to make it heavy, and said, walk up and down this hill, and he walked up and down a hill, and then he came back and looked at me in the face and says, that was fun. Can I do it again? I think God wants us to look at our trials the same way. To take joy in it and look God in the face and say, I enjoyed that. Let's do that again. When we're going through those type of trials, we need exceptional wisdom, and God will give it to us if we ask. All we've got to do is ask. He's gracious with us. As we go through difficulties, a lot of times our economic security is exposed as frail, and we actually start to learn from the poor. But we will be blessed with a crown of life if we endure. This week's text is, going to be, is James chapter 1, verse 13 to 18. I'm going to basically have two questions. There are going to be two little sections. The first one we're going to look at is chapter 1, verse 13 to 15. How do we process temptation? And let me read that. I'll be reading from the Christian Standard Version. No one undergoing a trial should say, I am being tempted by God, since God is not tempted by evil. And he himself doesn't tempt anyone. But each person is tempted when he is drawn away and enticed by his own evil desire. 
Then after desire has conceived, it gives birth to sin. And when sin is fully grilled, it gives birth to death. Yep. High stress will bring out temptation. What's happening here? First Paul, or Paul, James starts with some basic theology, some basic things we need to know about God. First, God is purely good. Second, he cannot be tempted because he's purely good. And third, he tempts no one. He doesn't lead us into places where we are tempted. But a few of you probably, in fact, I'm going to say most of you, many of you, know the Old Testament well enough that if we were in a church setting where we could talk with one another, you'd raise your hand and say, Pastor, that sounds right, but I can remember scripture that sounds a little bit different. And you would bring up some scenarios where God does test people, where he puts them in a situation to find out how obedient they are, and when the test is finished, they are stronger, right? I have three examples of this. One, God tested Abraham, the father of our faith, to see if he would be willing to sacrifice his long-anticipated son Isaac. That's in Genesis chapter 22. And maybe you would ask, are there times where we feel like God has given us something, he's promised us something, it finally comes, and we hold it, and it's so dear to us. But what if God says, even what you've held and you've hoped for, you've got to relinquish, will you do it? Another thing that's mentioned Judges chapter 2, verse 22 mentions that God tested Israel by having them surrounded by pagan nations. It was a test not just for the individual, but the test sometimes were for entire communities or nations. And I think sometimes we go through a corporate or a community testing. And when that happens, there can be a tendency to make our sin basically a group project. We're all involved in it. We're all captured by it. And if somebody argues against what we're all doing, they'll say, well, everybody's doing it. And we will typically try to shame, gaslight, or exclude the prophetic voice that calls the community to account. That's the story of the Old Testament. By and large, we still do that. Last example I'm going to give is God tested King Hezekiah to see how he would respond when Babylonian envoys came. That was in 2 Chronicles 32 or 2 Kings chapter 20. And Hezekiah, when he had Babylonian envoys come to visit him, he basically boasted of his wealth. And I think we do that today. Particularly, we've talked about this last week, and I'm, maybe I'm being redundant, but as there's been economic implications for the coronavirus, I think one of the things that has been exposed is how our economies in all Western nations are so consumer-driven. And by a slowdown of just a couple of weeks, throws everything into chaos. How dare we boast of our wealth? Our wealth is just frail. James makes it clear by the power of the Holy Spirit, we are not tempted by God. We are tested. We do have trials to strengthen us, but we're not tempted. We're not led back into sin by God. Instead, we're tempted by our own evil desires. And if we are not aware of our own inherent depravity, we will build mechanisms build mechanisms to constantly check it, we will fall into sin. James tells us that desire leads to sin, which when fully grown leads to death. There's a contemporary proverb I hear a lot of times in leadership magazines. It says something to this effect. Thought leads to actions. Actions lead to habits. Habits lead to character. And character becomes our destiny. 
I don't want you to miss how serious sin is. When you're wrestling with something dark, if you can, take a pause and think, where will this end up if I just let go? I think with most of the sins in our lives, they're going to lead to such patterns of destruction, some of them will lead to physical death, and they all lead to spiritual death and eternal separation from God. Next two verses we're going to look at, three, is uh, verse 16 to 18. Don't be deceived, my dear brothers and sisters. Every good and perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights, who does not change like shifting shadows. By his own choice, he gave us birth by the word of truth, so that we would be a kind of first fruits of his creatures. Now, what is the source of good things? James is basically writing with a lot of simple illustrations. They read like parables. They occasionally have a story here. And it's helping us think through what is life like when we're going through a time when there's lots and lots of trials and we feel very, very scattered. He says phrases that he repeats, and here's one again, don't be deceived. We can easily be persuaded to believe what's the most convenient. Uh, to allow our biases or the things that allow us to kind of take comfort in a story we want to tell about ourselves that isn't true, we can be deceived. We can be easily persuaded to believe what's most convenient. Second, uh, I repeat again, a message we are family. He says, brothers and sisters. And if you're a, a follower of Jesus, you're a part of God's family. And even through the season where we're separated and we rarely see people face to face other than maybe our immediate family, the people in our immediate home, we in a certain way are deprived of human touch, we're still family, brothers and sisters. Remember the source of good things. Every good and perfect gift comes from God and we need to be in the habit of seeing God and thanking God. And we need to be abundant in our thanksgiving. I want to affirm a culture that I spent some time in. And uh, it even hit me this week as I was doing my grocery shopping and I was walking through Walmart. And I found myself as my face is covered so I can't smile at people. I can't make the typical gestures that I would ex want to express just a kindness to strangers. I found myself falling into the habit of making eye contact with everyone in Walmart, and, or not everyone, at least the staff would look at me, and raising my eyebrows the way Rwandans do, and then saying a thank you to every staff member. You know what? I would not have done that if I hadn't spent my young adulthood in Uganda. And there's some jokes that when you're learning a new language or in your new culture, there's a certain things you just start to always do in a new culture. And generally the joke is you always say yes and always nod your head. In Uganda, you always say, you always say thank you. You're constantly looking for ways to say thank you. I think God is telling us in James, every good and perfect gift comes from God. And if we want to get through seasons that are very, very difficult, be constantly looking for all of the things to see this is the goodness of God and thank God, and then turn to hit people that represent God and thank them. God's nature is eternal. He is consistent. And 
I think James is subtly arguing against paganism because the idols of the nations are capricious, they're fickle, they're unpredictable. He wants us to remember our roots and not to be seduced by pagan ideas. He closes with what I think is a gospel illustration. He talks about that God made a choice at creation. He gave us a new birth, and that's both physical and spiritual, that the wonder we see as a child is born and the wonder we see as someone comes to faith in Jesus and their Holy Spirit enters into their life and they become a new creation. He does that through truth, and that truth is his word in the Bible and in his Son, and we thus become the first fruits of creation. We become his absolute best. Do not forget that the awesome dignity and responsibility is part of being made in God's image, in God's part of God's family. Particularly, don't forget that. We represent God. We're part of his family. We're the first fruits of his creation. Don't forget that as we face trials that will degrade our humanity. I'm going to conclude with two readings. The first, I want to reread the text that I've preached through, and I'm going to read it in Eugene Peterson's The Message, which I think is just a little more earthy, a little more practical to read. And it's Eugene Peterson's translates James chapter 1, verse 13 to 18 this way, this way. Don't let anyone under pressure to give in to evil say, God is trying to trip me up. God is impervious to evil and puts evil in no one's way. The temptation to give in to evil comes from us and only us. We have no one to blame but the leering, seducing flare-up of our own lust. Lust gets pregnant and has a baby sin. Sin grows up to adulthood and becomes a real killer. So, my dear friends, don't get get thrown down good. And per, so, my dear friends, don't get thrown down good. And, oh, excuse me. So, my dear friends, don't get thrown off course. Every desirable and beneficial gift comes out of heaven. The gifts are the river of light cascading down from the Father of Light. There is nothing deceitful in God. Nothing two faced. Nothing fickle. He brought us to life using the true word, showing us off as the crown of all his creations. And lastly, I want to read in a closing prayer from the Book of Common Prayer, reminding us that what we're going through is historic. Christianity has always done very well in seasons where the rest of the world feels in turmoil. I'm reading a prayer that is hundreds of years old. O God, whose blessed Son did manifest himself to his disciples in the breaking of bread. Open, we pray thee, the eyes of our faith, that we may behold him in all his redeeming work. Through the same thy Son, Jesus Christ our Lord, who liveth and reigneth with thee, in the unity of the Holy Spirit, one God, now and forever.